0: Only then, that which is nameless, comes into being.
1: This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Urgency of Change. This week's podcast continues Terence Stamp's reading of the classic book, commentaries on living. Most of these chapters have never been heard before. Next week's episode is a conversation with Alan Norday entitled Stepping Out of the Stream of the Self. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. For more information about our activities and programmes, such as our volunteer programme at Brockwood Park in the UK, we are online at kfoundation.org. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Commentaries on Living is one of Krishnamurti's most well-known and best-loved books. In it, he recalls many of the private conversations with those who came to see him. With encouragement from Aldous Huxley, these meetings were written down by Krishnamurti and published in 1956. Terence Stamp is an Oscar-nominated actor, known for his roles in The Limey, Superman, The Collector, Wall Street, and many others. It was through working with Fellini that he met and became friends with Krishnamurti, who, in Stamp's words, used his presence to pause my thinking. Thank you to the Carina Library in Ojai, California, and to Terence Stamp for these recordings. Chapters included in this episode are titled The Rich and the Poor, Ceremonies and Conversion, Knowledge, Respectability and Politics.
0: The Rich and the Poor It was hot and humid, and the noise of the very large town filled the air. The breeze from the sea was warm and there was the smell of tar and petrol. With the setting of the Sun red in the distant waters it was still unyieldingly hot. The large group that filled the room presently left and we went out into the street. The parrots like bright green flashes of light were coming home to roost. Early in the morning They had flown to the north, where there were orchards, green fields and open country, and in the evening they came back to pass the night in the trees of the city. Their flight was never smooth, but always reckless, noisy and brilliant. They never flew straight like other birds, but were forever veering off to the left or to the right, or suddenly dropping into a tree. They were the most restless birds in flight, but how beautiful they were, with their red beaks and a golden green that was the very glory of light. The vultures, heavy and ugly, circled and settled down for the night on the palm trees. A man came along playing the flute. He was a servant of some kind. He walked up the hill, still playing, and we followed him. He turned into one of the side streets, never ceasing to play. It was strange to hear the song of the flute in a noisy city and its sound penetrated deep into the heart. It was very beautiful and we followed the flute player for some distance. We crossed several streets and came to a wider one, better lighted. Farther on, a group of people were sitting cross-legged at the side of the road and the flute player joined them. So did we. And we all sat around while he played. They were mostly chauffeurs, servants, night watchmen and several children and a dog or two. Cars passed by, one driven by a chauffeur. A lady was inside, beautifully dressed and alone, with the inside light on. Another car drew up. The chauffeur got out and sat down with us. They were all talking and enjoying themselves, laughing and gesticulating, but the song of the flute never wavered, and there was delight. Presently we left, and took a road that led to the sea past the well-lit houses of the rich. The rich have a peculiar atmosphere of their own. However cultured, unobtrusive, ancient and polished, the rich have an impenetrable and assured aloofness. That inviolable certainty and hardness that is difficult to break down. They are not the possessors of wealth, but are possessed by wealth, which is worse than death. Their conceit is philanthropy. They think they are trustees of their wealth. They have charities, create endowments. They are the makers, the builders, the givers. They build churches, temples, but their God Is the god of their gold. With so much poverty and degradation, one must have a very thick skin to be rich. Some of them come to question, to argue, to find reality. For the rich, as for the poor, it is extremely difficult to find reality. The poor crave to be rich and powerful and the rich are already caught in the net of their own action and yet they believe and venture near. They speculate, not only upon the market, but on the ultimate. They play with both, but are successful only with what is in their hearts. Their beliefs and ceremonies, their hopes and fears, have nothing to do with reality, for their hearts are empty. The greater the outward show, The greater the inward poverty. To renounce the world of wealth, comfort, and position is a comparatively simple matter, but to put aside the craving to be, to become, demands great intelligence and understanding. The power that wealth gives is a hindrance to the understanding of reality, as is also the power of gift and capacity. This particular form of confidence is obviously an activity of the self and though it is difficult to do so, this kind of assurance and power can be put aside. But what is much more subtle and more hidden is the power and the drive that lie in the craving to become. Self-expansion in any form, whether through wealth or through virtue, is a process of conflict, causing antagonism and confusion. A mind burdened with becoming can never be tranquil, for tranquility is not a result either of practice or of time. Tranquility is a state of understanding, and becoming denies this understanding. Becoming creates the sense of time, which is really the postponement of understanding. The I shall be is an illusion born of self-importance. The sea was as restless as the town, but its restlessness had depth and substance. The evening star was on the horizon. We walked back through a street crowded with buses, cars and people. A man lay naked and asleep on the sidewalk. He was a beggar exhausted, fatally undernourished and it was difficult to awaken him. Beyond lay the green lawns and bright flowers of a public garden. Ceremonies and Conversion In the large enclosure among many trees was a church. People, brown and white, were going inside. Inside there was more light than in the European churches, but the arrangements were the same. The ceremony was in progress and there was beauty. When it was over, very few of the brown talked to the white, or the white to the brown, and we all went our different ways. On another continent, there was a temple. They were singing in a Sanskrit chant, the puja. A Hindu ceremony was being performed. The congregation was of another cultural pattern. The tonality of Sanskrit words is very penetrating and powerful. It has a strange weight and depth. You can be converted from one belief to another, from one dogma to another, but you cannot be converted to the understanding of reality. Belief is not reality. You can change your mind, your opinion... But truth, or God, is not a conviction. It is an experience not based on any belief or dogma, or on any previous experience. If you have an experience born of belief, your experience is the conditioned response of that belief. If you have an experience unexpectedly, spontaneously, and build further experience upon the first then experience is merely a continuation of memory, which responds to contact with the present. Memory is always dead, coming to life only in contact with the living present. Conversion is change from one belief or dogma to another, from one ceremony to a more gratifying one, and it does not open the door to reality. On the contrary, gratification is a hindrance to reality. And yet, that is what organized religions and religious groups are attempting to do. To convert you to a more reasonable or a less reasonable dogma, superstition or hope. They offer you a better cage. It may or may not be comfortable, depending on your temperament, but in any case, it is a prison religiously and politically, at different levels of culture, this conversion is going on all the time. Organizations with their leaders thrive on keeping man in the ideological patterns they offer, whether religious or economic. In this process lies mutual exploitation. Truth is outside of all patterns, fears and hopes. If you would discover the supreme happiness of truth, you must break away from all ceremonies and ideological patterns. The mind finds security and strength in religious and political patterns and this is what gives stamina to the organizations. There are always the diehards and the new recruits. They keep the organizations with their investments and properties going And the power and prestige of the organisations attract those who worship success and worldly wisdom. When the mind finds the old patterns are no longer satisfying and life-giving, it becomes converted to other more comforting and strengthening beliefs and dogmas. So the mind is the product of environment recreating and sustaining itself on sensations and identifications. And that is why the mind clings to codes of conduct, patterns of thought, and so on. As long as the mind is the outcome of the past, it can never discover truth or allow truth to come into being. In holding to organizations, it discards the search for truth. Obviously, rituals offer to the participants an atmosphere in which they feel good. Both collective and individual rituals give a certain quietness to the mind. They offer a vital contrast to the everyday, humdrum life. There is a certain amount of beauty and orderliness in ceremonies, but fundamentally they are stimulants. And as with all stimulants, they soon dull the mind and heart. Rituals become habit, they become a necessity and one cannot do without them. This necessity is considered a spiritual renewal, a gathering of strength to face life, a weekly or daily meditation, and so on. But if one looks more closely into this process, one sees that rituals are vain repetition, which offer a marvelous and respectable escape from self-knowledge. Without self-knowledge, action has very little significance. The repetition of chants, of words and phrases puts the mind to sleep, though it is stimulating enough for the time being. In this sleepy state, experiences do occur, but they are self-projected. However gratifying, these experiences are illusory. The experiencing of reality does not come about through any repetition, through any practice. Truth is not an end, a result, a goal. It cannot be invited, for it is not a thing of the mind. Knowledge. We were waiting for the train, and it was late. The platform was dirty and noisy, the air acrid. There were many people waiting like us. Children were crying. A mother was suckling her baby. The vendors were shouting their wares, tea and coffee were being sold and it was an altogether busy and clamorous place. We were walking up and down the platform, watching our own footsteps and the movement of life about us. A man came up to us and began to talk in broken English. He said he had been watching us and felt impelled to say something to us. With great feeling, he promised he would lead a clean life and that from this moment, he would never smoke again. He said he was not educated, as he was only a rickshaw boy. He had strong eyes and a pleasant smile. Presently, the train came. In the carriage, a man introduced himself. He was a well-known scholar. He knew many languages and could quote freely in them. He was full of years and knowledge, well-to-do and ambitious. He talked of meditation, but he gave the impression that he was not speaking from his own experience. His God was the God of books. His attitude towards life was traditional and conformatory. He believed in early, pre-arranged marriage and in a strict code of life. He was conscious of his own caste or class and in the differences in the intellectual capacity of the castes. He was strangely vain in his knowledge and position. The sun was setting and the train was passing through lovely country. The cattle were coming home and there was golden dust. There were huge black clouds on the horizon and the crack of distant thunder. What a joy a green field holds. And how pleasant is that village in the fold of a curving mountain. Darkness was setting in. A big blue deer was feeding in the fields. He did not even look up as the train roared by. Knowledge is a flash of light between two darknesses. But knowledge cannot go above and beyond that darkness. Knowledge is essential to technique as coal to the engine but it cannot reach out into the unknown. The unknown is not to be caught in the net of the known. Knowledge must be set aside for the unknown to be. But how difficult that is. We have our being in the past. Our thought is founded upon the past. The past is the known, and the response of the past is ever overshadowing the present, the unknown. The unknown is not the future, but the present. The future is but the past pushing its way through the uncertain present. This gap, this interval, is filled with the intermittent light of knowledge, covering the emptiness of the present. But this emptiness holds the miracle of life. Addiction to knowledge is like any other addiction. It offers an escape from the fear of emptiness, of loneliness, of frustration, the fear of being nothing. The light of knowledge is a delicate covering under which lies a darkness that the mind cannot penetrate. The mind is frightened of this unknown and so it escapes into knowledge, into theories, hopes, imagination. And this very knowledge is a hindrance to the understanding of the unknown. To put aside knowledge is to invite fear and to deny the mind, which is the only instrument of perception one has, is to be vulnerable to sorrow, to joy. But it is not easy to put aside knowledge. To be ignorant is not to be free of knowledge. Ignorance is the lack of self-awareness. And knowledge is ignorance when there is no understanding of the ways of the self. Understanding of the self is freedom from knowledge. There can be freedom from knowledge only when the process of gathering... The motive of accumulation is understood. The desire to store up is the desire to be secure, to be certain. This desire for certainty through identification, through condemnation and justification is the cause of fear which destroys all communion. When there is communion, there is no need for accumulation. Accumulation is is self-enclosing resistance, and knowledge strengthens this resistance. The worship of knowledge is a form of idolatry, and it will not dissolve the conflict and misery of our life. The cloak of knowledge conceals, but can never liberate us from our ever-increasing confusion and sorrow. The ways of the mind do not lead to truth and its happiness. To know is to deny the unknown. Respectability He asserted that he was not greedy, that he was satisfied with little, and that life had been good to him, though he suffered the usual miseries of human existence. He was a quiet man, unobtrusive, hoping not to be disturbed from his easy ways. He said that he was not ambitious, but prayed to God for the things he had, for his family and for the even flow of his life. He was thankful not to be plunged into problems and conflicts as his friends and relations were. He was rapidly becoming very respectable and happy in the thought that he was one of the elite. He was not attracted to other women and he had a peaceful family life, though there were the usual wrangles of husband and wife. He had no special vices, prayed often and worshipped God. What is the matter with me, he asked, as I have no problems. He did not wait for a reply, but smiling in a satisfied and somewhat mournful way, proceeded to tell of his past, what he was doing, and what kind of education he was giving to his children. He went on to say that he was not generous, but gave a little here and there. He was certain that each one must struggle to make a position for himself in the world. Respectability is a curse. It is an evil that corrodes the mind and heart. It creeps upon one unknowingly and destroys love. To be respectable is to feel successful, to carve for oneself a position in the world to build around oneself a wall of certainty, of that assurance which comes with money, power, success, capacity or virtue. This exclusiveness of assurance breeds hatred and antagonism in human relationship, which is society. The respectable are always the cream of society, and so they are ever the cause of strife and misery. The respectable, like the despised, are always at the mercy of circumstances, the influences of environment and the weight of tradition are vastly important to them for these hide their inward poverty. The respectable are on the defensive, fearful and suspicious. Fear is in their hearts. So anger is their righteousness. Their virtue and piety are their defence. They are as the drum empty within, but loud when beaten. The respectable can never be open to reality, for, like the despised, they are enclosed in the concern for their own self-improvement. Happiness is denied to them, for they avoid truth. To be non-greedy and not to be generous are closely related. Both are a self-enclosing process, a negative form of self centeredness To be greedy, you must be active, outgoing. You must strive, compete, be aggressive. If you do not have this drive, you are not free of greed, but only self-enclosed. Outgoing is a disturbance, a painful struggle. So self-centeredness is covered over by the word non-greedy. To be generous with the hand is one thing, but to be generous of heart is another Generosity of the hand is a fairly simple affair, depending upon the cultural pattern and so on, but generosity of the heart is of vastly deeper significance, demanding extensional awareness and understanding. Not to be generous is again a pleasant and blind self-absorption in which there is no outward going. This self-absorbed state has its own activities, like those of a dreamer, but they never wake you up. The waken up process is a painful one, and so, young or old, you would rather be left alone to become respectable, to die. Like generosity of the heart, generosity of the hand is an outgoing movement, but it is often painful, deceptive and self-revealing. Generosity of the hand is easier to come by, but generosity of the heart is not a thing to be cultivated. It is freedom from all accumulation. To forgive, there must have been a wound. And to be wounded, there must have been the gatherings of pride. There is no generosity of heart as long as there is a referential memory, the me and the mine. Politics High up on the mountains, it had been raining all day. It was not a soft, gentle rain, but one of those torrential downpours that wash out roads and uproot trees on the hillside, causing landslides and noisy streams which become quiet in a few hours. A little boy, soaked to the skin, was playing in a shallow pool and paying not the least attention to the angry and high-pitched voice of his mother. A cow was coming down the muddy road as we climbed it. The clouds seemed to open and cover the land with water. We were wet through and removed most of our clothing, and the rain was pleasant on our skin. The house was way up on the mountainside, and the town lay below. A strong wind was blowing from the west, bringing more dark and furious clouds. There was a fire in the room, and several people were waiting to talk things over. The rain beating on the windows, had made a large puddle on the floor, and the water even came down the chimney, making the fire sputter. He was a very famous politician, realistic, intensely sincere and ardently patriotic. Neither narrow-minded nor self-seeking, his ambition was not for himself, but for an idea and for the people. He was not a mere eloquent tub-thumper or vote-catcher. He had suffered for his cause and, strangely, was not bitter. He seemed more of a scholar than a politician. But politics was the bread of his life, and his party obeyed him, though rather nervously. He was a dreamer, but he had put all that aside for politics. His friend, the leading economist, was also there. He had intricate theories and facts concerning the distribution of enormous revenues. He seemed to be familiar with the economists of both the left and the right, and he had his own theories for the economic salvation of mankind. He talked easily, and there was no hesitation for words. Both of them had harangued huge crowds. Have you noticed in newspapers and magazines the amount of space given to politics, to the sayings of politicians and their activities? Of course, other news is given, but political news predominates. The economic and political life has become all-important. The outward circumstances, uh, comfort, money, position, power, seem to dominate and shape our existence. The external show, the title, the garb, the salute, the flag, has become increasingly significant, and the total process of life has been forgotten or deliberately set aside. It is so much easier to throw oneself into social and political activities than to understand life as a whole. To be associated with any organised thought, with political or religious activity, offers a respectable escape from the pettiness and drudgery of everyday life. With a small heart, you can talk of big things and of the popular leaders. You can hide your shallowness with the easy phrases of world affairs. Your restless mind can happily, and with popular encouragement, settle down to propagate the ideology of a new or of an old religion. Politics is the reconciliation of effects. And as most of us are concerned with effects, the external has assumed dominant significance. By manipulating effects, we hope to bring about order and peace But unfortunately, it is not as simple as all that. Life is a total process, the inner as well as the outer. The outer definitely affects the inner, but the inner invariably overcomes the outer. What you are, you bring about outwardly. The outer and the inner cannot be separated and kept in watertight compartments, for they are constantly interacting upon each other but the inner craving, the hidden pursuits and motives, are always more powerful. Life is not dependent upon political or economic activity. Life is not a mere outward show, any more than a tree is the leaf or the branch. Life is a total process, whose beauty is to be discovered only in its integration. This integration does not take place on the superficial level of political and economic reconciliations. It is to be found beyond causes and effects. Because we play with causes and effects and never go beyond them, except verbally, our lives are empty without much significance. It is for this reason that we have become slaves to political excitement and to religious sentimentalism. There is hope only in the integration of the several processes of which we are made up. This integration does not come into being through any ideology or through following any particular authority, religious or political. It comes into being only through extensive and deep awareness. This awareness must go into the deeper layers of consciousness and not be content with surface responses.